Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Henry G. Franke III and Ed Hulse, Look at Tarzan of the Apes and other jungle adventures found in the pulps. Henry is the editor of the Burroughs Bulletin, the journal of the Burroughs Bibliophiles, and Ed is editor and publisher at Morania Press. The presentation was part of HerbFest 2023, which was held in conjunction with PulpFest. This podcast was recorded on August 4th at PulpFest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Henry begins. Good afternoon. Again, this, is, this panel is uh, titled It's a Jungle Out There. This is uh, Tarzan of the Apes and his principal uh, imitations uh, in the pulp magazines. Uh, what uh, is interesting is how Tarzan of the Apes really kick-started the uh, feral human subgenre into high gear, literally with one issue of All-Story Magazine in 1912. And uh, the, the regular presence of Tarzan in the pulps for the next 30 years, from 1941 or so, kept Tarzan uh, in the forefront of the reading public and, in fact, uh, drove editors to want to find more that would get readers to buy their books. As you see here, and I'm going to run through this first to give you uh, some context. These are the, the stories, some of which were put together directly as novels or were comprised to make books over the years. Uh, next, please. No, I've got the control. I have the power. Uh, again, uh, it's, what's interesting about the Tarzan characters is, you know, Burroughs had planned potentially to write only two books. When he, was, when he uh, created Tarzan and had the first uh, novel come out, he was literally cranking in multiple genres. He was hot on fire. He did 600,000 words or so in 1916 or so. He was, uh, he was in pulps almost constantly with a multitude of stories, uh, not just Tarzan. Uh, and so Tarzan, in fact, really, I think, control of him more than he took control of Tarzan as years went by. He was in such demand. You'll notice a couple of things here. One is is that he bounced around in different pulps. Now, the, the market wasn't huge for, the, for this kind of story, but the readers wanted this, this character and wanted Burroughs' writing so badly that uh, people did vie for him, and he did ask for money. And that was the biggest problem with the editors. As Tarzan went from the World War I era to the Great Depression into World War II, uh, the, the issue of money both by the author and what he wanted and what the editors could afford, especially in the Depression era, is significant. Uh, and I contend that the demand, of course, outstripped what Burroughs was putting out. And there were the invitations would allow editors to get other characters that might fire up the public's interest that cost them less, especially in the, in the Depression years. And then, as you see, to uh, 1941, uh, he had a couple books that never appeared in the pulps that uh, were, were published later, but uh, quite a run. And again, what really got Tarzan going, especially in the 1930s, was uh, the comic strip started out in 1929 and eventually really caught hold. Uh, radio program started, which uh, was there for a couple of years, but it, it, it helped add to the public. The radio show was, it was a big uh, output for toys as premiums and all. That increased, but the merchandising really kicked off between 31 and 33. And of course, the movies. 
with Weissmuller movies, uh, his first uh, Tarzan, the, uh, the Ape Man, coming out in 1932. So this confluence really put uh, the Tarzan stories in demand and Tarzan imitators uh, to, to help bolster reading public demands. In addition, Edgar Rice Burroughs decided to publish his own books and try to get a little more money out of it starting in 1931. And their business plan was to put out two books a year, one Tarzan and one fantastic or other non-fantastic story. So he had a, one of his drivers in getting these books out was to meet his own publishing plans. At the same time, getting something into the pulps meant, number one, a little more money, and it also, of course, meant a little more public interest in, in going on and buying books afterwards. So while Burroughs may have thought that he was going to not write Tarzan pretty early in his writing career, it wound up being uh, the thread that kept him in the public eye most internationally and drove the demand, I believe, for Tarzan imitators to fill the gap for the readers. Uh, with that, I'm going to pass it on to Ed Hulse to give you a, an overview of the principal imitators of Tarzan. Yeah, so as Henry said, when once Burroughs caught fire, uh, especially with all story readers, which was one of the, one of the major magazines at the time, uh, the editor, Bob Davis, was interested in um, uh, getting as many Burroughs-like stories into the magazine as he could without having to pay Burroughs. Now, Burroughs, in the teens, his word rates were not as, as large as they, would, uh, as they would get in the 20s, but it was still significant, and also there was the question of uh, how many Tarzans he was willing to turn out. As, as Henry pointed out, he, he didn't really want to be pigeonholed. He only expected to write a couple, and... I know that he, he, he claimed that he felt after, especially after I think the fifth novel, after Jewels of Opar, he felt that he had completely exhausted the possibilities for new story ideas. Well, he hadn't, um, uh, and editors still wanted him to do them, so he did. But in the meantime, Bob Davis was looking for others. Now, there's a school of thought that, that holds that uh, Polaris of the Snows, which was written by uh, Charles Stilson, I think 1918, maybe earlier than that, was a Tarzan character. Polaris grew up in the, uh, around the North Pole. But the major difference is he wasn't really what Henry called the feral human. While he interacted with wild animals, po uh, polar bears and whatnot, he was not raised by them as Tarzan was. He had a father, and even though he was, uh, Polaris was kind of, let's say, emotionally stunted by his limited uh, contact with you know, the rest of humanity, uh, he, he was essentially human, and he had learned from humans, whereas Tarzan was, was more a, a, a creature of the animals. So it took a while for pulp editors to, to, to use the same formula, but uh, chronologically, the, 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 the first real Tarzan simulacrum, to use a fancy word, uh, was probably Jan of the Jungle, which was a novel serialized in six 1931 issues of Argosy, um, beginning April 18th. Uh, the story was called Jan of the Jungle. It was later published in hardcover as Call of the Savage, and under that title it was adapted to the screen for a 1935 serial. Now Jan was a young boy. Uh, oddly enough, the story doesn't begin in, in the jungles of Africa. It begins in Florida. And uh, he, he again, he had parents. The parents died, um, and uh, he was had a surrogate mother, if you want to use that expression, in the form of a female chimpanzee named Chikma. And uh, Otis Adelbert Klein, for those of you who don't know, was 
probably the premier Burroughs imitator and a great fan, and you would think that the two guys would be at each other's throats because Burroughs was very protective about, about his work and about his characters and the themes that he had developed in stories. You would think that he and Klein would be at each other's throats, but apparently that was not the case. Uh, Klein, of course, was a, was a famous agent later on, a literary agent, but he wrote not only the Jan of the Jungle stories, but he, he wrote other science fictional imitations of Burroughs' other characters, like, like John Carter and David Ennis. Uh, so Jan begins uh, as a young boy. He's shipwrecked off to the coast of Venezuela and uh, with Chipma, and they make their way into the jungle, and they have various adventures. And it's a, a very odd section of Venezuela, which I dare say uh, we wouldn't recognize from the news today, uh, an area where prehistoric creatures coexist with bestial, kind of kind of sort of people you'd find in Opar, you know, a bestial tribe. But there is an, a, a lost city, which is, again, the mandatory accoutrement, let's say, of, of these jungle stories. And he meets, Jan meets a girl named uh, uh, Mona, or Ramona. They call her Ramona in the serial. And um, she kind of tames him. She becomes the Jane to his Tarzan, so to speak. So there was a sequel called Jan in India, which is kind of self-explanatory, that, ran, that was a three-parter that ran in Argosy in 1935, which is also the year that Jan of the Jungle uh, was, was made into the serial Call of Savage, which was released by Universal. And the guy who played Jan was Noah Beery Jr., who many of you remember from the Rockford Files as Rocky. But in those days, he was a strapping young man, and um, they, they incorporated Chickman to the stories. It's a reasonably close adaptation, and it's certainly no classic, but it's very entertaining. It is commercially available on video. Uh, so Jan came along around 1931. That, a little later that same year in the fall, uh, William Clayton published the first magazine called Jungle Stories, not to be confused with the Fiction House Jungle Stories. And primarily it was a, a reprint vehicle for jungle set stories that had appeared in earlier Clayton pulps. Uh, like Ace High, and uh, I forget what other, what other adventure pulps he, he did in the twenties. But in any event, the one the the cover story, so to speak, and the lead story of each issue was a newly written story featuring a character called Sangru the Sun God, and he he was a lot closer to a, a Tarzan type character. But the magazine only lasted three issues. It's very rare. And I have to confess, I haven't read the Sangru story, so I can't really tell you much about it because, uh, I mean, I, it seems to me if anybody could find them, they'd be perfect candidates for reprinting. But uh, like I say, the magazine only lasted three issues and is very hard to find, probably did not have much of a circulation at all. There was a little, a little better luck that was had by the thrilling group, the group of Ned Pine's pulps, which are known as standard publications and better publications and several other names, but generally the Thrilling Group and uh, Thrilling Adventures had started, I believe, in late 1931. By 1932, they were running a series featuring a Tarzan uh, imitation called Qua of the Jungle, K-W-A, and it was uh, billed, the stories were bylined, Paul Regard who had other stories in the Thrilling Pulps. It was actually the work of Pearly Poor Sheehan, 
who was a very famous writer, especially in the early all-story days. Uh, he had done some fantasy classics like The Abyss of Wonders and The Copper Princess. He'd also had a bestseller in a book called um, We Are French, which was a World War I thing set in Paris, a romance. It was made into a movie three times, so it was obviously a very popular story. Sheehan is a really odd character, and I, I, I can't really go into it because it's outside the scope of this discussion. But he wound up leaving fiction writing, and he became an acolyte for the Hollywood studios. He was crazy about the movies. He went to Hollywood. He tried to be a screenwriter. He didn't really write many movies. The most famous one that he did write was the Lon Chaney version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923. But he, he wrote for studios in various capacities, and he did a lot of publicity work, puff pieces and things, building up Hollywood at a time when the, the, the news about the, the, the city was racked with scandal. This was when there were drug scandals and around the time of the Fatty Arbuckle trial. And Sheehan was, was trying to counter all the bad publicity that Hollywood had gotten in the early 20s. So he left Pulps for a while, but he came back in the early 30s. And I don't know how he got hooked up with Ned Pines, but he wrote a, a number of stories. I mean... He wrote The Quad of the Jungle for Thrilling Adventures. For Thrilling Mystery, he invented a character called Dr. Coffin, who appeared in uh, 1932 and 1933. Now, for those stories, he used his real name. But for Quan, for some of the other things he wrote for the Thrilling Group, he used Paul Regard. Quad lasted a, 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 little, a little bit longer than Sangru the Sun God did. Uh, but I have to say... You know, it's about a half a dozen yarns over a period of, of like maybe 10 months. They are kind of mundane. They're, they're closer to Tarzan than, than anything, you know, to date. But it was a, a pedestrian, I would say, pedestrian imitation at best. So we need not to go into them, which is a shame because Sheehan was a good writer. He was a terrific writer. And anybody who's read his, some of his earlier stuff, like Abyss of Wonders, I mean, really, really great stuff from teens. But I think he was pretty much played out by the early 30s. So the Qua stories are interesting, and they're enjoyable enough, but they're certainly not memorable, and they certainly didn't break any new ground. It was all stuff recycled, situations, themes, and characters, including, of course, the inevitable Lost City pops up in, in at least one of the stories. So uh, while I personally have a fascination with Sheehan's work in general, I can't honestly say that this is... Uh, uh, something that, that I would recommend too much. Now, my favorite Tarzan imitation appeared in Blue Book. Now, Blue Book was one of those pulps that Burroughs sold to frequently. And what happened was he had been selling to the Muncie pulps early in his career, All Story and then Argosy. In the early 20s, when Argosy merged with All Story, Burroughs had several things, and he brought Tarzan to, to this new hybrid magazine, Argosy All Story. Then he started writing for Blue Book in the late 20s when there was an editorial shakeup at the, at the Muncie magazines, and there were some people within the organization who balked at paying Burroughs word rates. So before the Depression, when he was still riding high, he purposely got these guys in bidding wars, Argosy and Blue Book. Well, Blue Book won out sometimes, Argosy won out other times, but they realized that, that they could not continue to pay Burroughs uh, these, these high word rates, even in the Depression. 
because they did cut his rates during the Depression when they cut everybody's word rates, but Burroughs was still getting more than, than most of the other guys. So they turned to a very f fascinating, I, again, I think he's fascinating, character of, about whom very little is known, a guy named William L. Chester, who seems not to have written any other pulp fiction other than this character he created for a blue book called Cayoga the Snowhawk. Now, Cayoga, Cayoga's turf, his home ground, is a kind of a, a wilderness-covered island in the uh, north of the Arctic Circle that's only habitable due to unnaturally warm water currents up there, the source of which I don't think is ever really explained, and uh, volcanic activity, periodic volcanic activity, which warms the place up. But it's got kind of a tropical setting in this island north of the Arctic Circle, which is pretty bizarre. So Kyoga is, is closer to Tarzan in that he has parents, and they are shipwrecked um, on this island, and his parents are killed by some of the natives, who, by the way, are depicted as ancestors of our own Native Americans. You know, apparently there was a faction of them that drifted south through Canada and settled in, in, in uh, America, or what is now America. But they are definitely, you know, native types as opposed to African native types. They have their own religion and whatnot. And um, the boy, by the way, his, name, his real name was Lincoln Rand. That was Cayuga's real name. He's named Cayuga by uh, the other tribes people, and he's raised after his parents die by... Uh, a kindly native named Makui, and Makui is his advisor and trainer, and he, you know, he teaches him the language that the that the natives use. And uh, Kyoga has a pet bear named Aki, a polar bear, and a uh, not a polar bear, but a, what we call a brown bear, and a trained puma called Mika. And a lot of the early parts of the story just like the Tarzan stories in Jungle Tales of Tarzan revolve around the young Kyoga. Now, they, they tell enough of this stuff in the first story to set up what he is and what his skills are. Uh, he, he's able to travel through the trees, which the other natives don't do. And uh, Makui teaches him all kinds of survival skills and uh, how to interact with the animals without getting eaten. And... Uh, but, but he is constantly at war with the other natives, just as Tarzan was with uh, the African natives. Um, so the first story is called Hawk of the Wilderness, and it was serialized in Blue Book in 1935. It also was published in hardcover, uh, and it was very popular, proved very popular. The people who liked Burroughs and Burroughs-type jungle adventures found Kyoga an acceptable substitute because he was you know, powerful. He wasn't superhuman, but he, he, he was more powerful than the, the typical human race and civilization. And because of that, the interactions with the animals and the other natives, a lot of people saw him as a very acceptable substitute for Tarzan. So uh, there was a sequel to that novel the following year, 1936, called Kyoga of the Wilderness, which recycled some of the principal characters from the first novel, because obviously... Just as Lord Greystoke's people came looking for him uh, in the Tarzan saga, Lincoln Rand's people came looking for him eventually and mounted expeditions to, to the, uh, the island. 
Um, some of those characters were carried over for the second book, Coyote of the Wilderness, after which Republic Pictures optioned these stories and made them into a cliffhanger movie serial in 1938, which they, they used the title of the first book, Hawk of the Wilderness, but there's elements from the first two books in there. Um, and it's a very good serial. It's not commercially available, but there are bootleg copies of it that are very easily had on eBay uh, or other sources like that. So if you want to go online and search for it, I, I would recommend it. By the way, an interesting note of trivia, the guy who plays Kyoga in the serial is Herman Bricks, the former Olympic athlete who just three years before had played Tarzan in the Burroughs-produced serial New Adventures of Tarzan. And Herman Bricks, by this time, was pretty adept at climbing up trees and swinging from vines and whatnot. So he made a, a, a good uh, Kyoga. Chester was back in Blue Book in 1937 with a series of Kyoga short stories that, that really concentrated on his youth and his relationship with a young, crippled native boy called Caius. Caius also appears in the movie serial, by the way. <clears throat> and then finally, in 1938, there was one more serialized novel called Cayuga of the Unknown Land, which again is, is you know, referring to the, uh, to the island of Natowa. So, and that was it. After that, Chester wrote one short story for Adventure Magazine, having no connection to Cayuga, and then that was it. He was gone. And he had, by this time, had, a, a, as I understand it from the comments I've read, a fairly loyal following I don't know how long the Kyoga series would have lasted. I don't think it would have had the staying power of Tarzan, but it, it certainly, he, he could have continued writing. But he got out of the business for some reason. Now, I know during the war, he did some kind of writing for the government. I don't remember exactly what the connection was, what the agency was, but he did continue to do some writing. And he wrote a very spirited defense of pulp fiction and pulp magazines in a letter that I believe was published in the New York Times. And this was around the time he was wrapping up Cuyahoga's adventure. But, you know, somebody had written a piece saying, you know, what trash pulp magazines were, and they were corrupting the morals of American youth. And he wrote, like I say, a very spirited and very cogent defense of, of pulp fiction and action fiction in general. Um, so it's, it's a shame that he didn't write more fiction. It's a shame we don't know more about him. He is a subject for future research. But those of us who have tried thus far to find out more about him have been kind, kind of doomed to, to failure. Anyway, chronologically, after Kyoga started in 1935, the next pseudo-Tarzan to make an impression was Kazar. And his uh, eponymous pulp magazine was published by Manvis Publications, which was one of the many shell companies created by Martin Goodman, who would later found the Marvel Comics empire and uh, make a, a much larger fortune than he ever did in pulp magazines as a, as a result of that. But um, uh, Kazar was, was interesting in that he didn't start in a general magazine. They gave him his own title right away. Now, remember, 1936 was the year of the hero pulps. Single character magazines were selling very well. So I gather they figured he didn't need a test, a test run in another magazine. They'd give him his own magazine. Uh, and, and those stories were written by Thompson Burtis, of all people. And I say, I say that because Burtis had, never, had not previously written anything of this type. His specialty was aviation. 
And he wrote for most of the big magazines. He wrote for Argosy. He wrote for Blue Book. Uh, he wrote for short stories. He wrote for some of the other adventure pulps, but usually about the Texas Air Patrol. And he had certain recurring characters. They would kind of cycle back and forth. There was one character named Slim Evans, and there were several others that, uh, um, that he would use from time to time. But he, he was a very good writer when it came to these aviation stories. And a lot of them had to do with what you would imagine, border smugglers and things like that. So the idea that he would do a Tarzan, an imitation Tarzan, was kind of off the wall. And frankly, I'm, I don't know how he got the job. But he did that. He wrote the books uh, under the pseudonym of Bob Bird, B-Y-R-D. And it was, uh, you know, the origin story was pretty familiar. This was David Rand. Remember, Kyogre was Lincoln Rand. David Rand and his parents uh, crash in a plane in the Congo. And mom dies. Dad goes nuts. And somebody has to, to raise the kid. And... He is befriended by a lion whose name is Czar. Uh, so the natives uh, give him the name of Kazar, which means brother of Czar. And uh, he wanders around, and uh, in the first issue, he just kind of does the kind of typical jungle feats that made Tarzan popular. They didn't create a Jane for him until the second issue, which was published in January of 37. And his Jane was a slave girl named Claudette, uh, whom he rescues from a, an Indian rajah who's been banished and sets up his own kingdom in the, in the Congo. Uh, <clears throat> it seemed like a promising beginning, but five months passed before the third and, as it turned out, final issue of Khazar. By this time, they, they changed the title from Khazar to Khazar the Great, but he couldn't have been too great because that was the end of him. And uh, there was a book-length novel called The Lost Empire. So once again, you know, I mean, the, the, the one constant in all these jungle series, and again, something picked up right from Burroughs, is the concept of all these lost cities that dot the jungle. And I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, in the old days in Hollywood, the tour guides would sell maps of all the stars' homes. And you could take bus tours you know, from one place to another, from Beverly Hills, going around to the Hollywood Hills. And I was thinking, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been great for us Pulp fans if, if they had a map of Africa showing all the lost cities that are depicted in all these Pulp stories? You know, some tour, enterprising tour guide could have made a fortune. Um, but like I say, Kazar didn't make it in the Pulps. The third issue was his left. However, when Goodman, Martin Goodman, started Marvel Comics a couple years later, Kazar was one of the recurring characters there. So we had a second life in the, in the Marvel comic books of the early days. And again, Thompson Burtis was a really good writer. I don't know why he took this job, because the hero pulps didn't pay a lot of money, and uh, uh, he was doing better in, in the major markets. I, the only thing I can imagine is that being the Depression, you know, a lot of the freelance writers were like actors. Every actor thinks his current gig is the last one he's ever going to get. They all fret about it. So it may be that Burtis just took this stuff uh, as, as a way of making some extra cash during the Depression. Another excellent pulp writer who, who um, had a very long and not terribly distinguished but prolific career was E. Hoffman Price, who some of you may know from his work from Weird Tales, 
But he did a lot of other stuff too. He was a very prolific contributor to the spicy pulps uh, under his own and, and some, some pen names. He wound up uh, doing a, a Tarzan clone for the Muncie pulps, which were then called the Red Star pulps. So for Red Star Adventures in 1940, he created Matala, M-A-T-A-L-A-A. I don't know if it's Matala or Matala. I'm not really sure of the pronunciation, but they called the Matala the White Savage. And um, Price uh, did the stories under the name Martin McCall, and they turned out to be four 50,000-word novels for four consecutive issues of uh, Red Star uh, Adventures between June 40 and January 41. So his home turf, he was not an African-type Tarzan clone. He was on a, a South Sea island. And there again, just like some of the earlier characters I mentioned, including Polaris, he was not really a true Tarzan clone in that he, he was not raised by or did not pal around with animals so much. But he did grow up in a hostile environment and as a result developed skills that a, that a lot of the other guys didn't have. So, in fact, he, he had his, his advisor was a guy named uh, Moi Uto, who was a witch doctor, and he tussled with a usual motley assortment of South Seas, you know, pearl smugglers and, you know, crooked Dutch traders that were uh, running around there. They were well-written stories, but they weren't terribly exciting, and they didn't really add much to the genre. Now, there are other people, I don't want to go too long, there are other uh, people that were kind of like Tarzan. Uh, Walker Thompson for Top Notch wrote of Ozar the Aztec. And um, there are some people who consider Sean O'Larkin, popular magazine, late 20s. He wrote of a character called Morgo the Mighty, who had kind of an underground kingdom of hostile animals and, and whatnot. Not terribly convincing, but great covers. And um, his real name was John Larkin, by the way. I don't know where he came up with Sean O'Larkin, but he, he thought that the more Irish name apparently was an asset to his career. Um, so there was that. He was in the popular magazine. Howard Brown, of course, years later, wrote about Farn, Warrior of the Dawn, in Amazing Stories. And Ray Palmer uh, wrote of Toga, or Toka, King of, the, King of the Dinosaurs in Fantastic Adventures. But again, they were not so much uh, Tarzan clones because they weren't. They, they existed in hostile environments with uh, primitive wild beasts, but they weren't necessarily raised by them. They didn't have that that uh, that connection that Tarzan had of being raised by wild animals in the jungle. So the last one I'll talk about, and the most popular, was Kaigor, or as some people say, Kigor who began in the second version of Jungle Stories, which was the one founded by Fiction House in 1938. And um, he was in the first issue when he got the cover story, uh, but it was a novelette. It was not a, a full-length novel. It was 20-something thousand words. And it was credited to John Murray Reynolds, whose main market was Five Novels Monthly, which started as a Clayton pulp, uh, but at that time was being printed by Dell. He had something in practically every issue of five novels monthly, but somehow he got this gig writing for Kaigor in uh, Jungle Stories. Now, Kaigor, of course, is the son of a missionary killed by a tribe of natives, a hostile tribe. Sound familiar? 
Uh, that tribe was called the Wagumba, and the boy is kind of taken under the wing of a, well, maybe the trunk, taken under the trunk of a kindly elephant named Marmo. And in that first story, Kygor grows to adulthood and rescues an American aviatrix named uh, Helene Vaughn who crashes in the jungle, and she decides to stay there with Kygor because who wouldn't? She'd obviously read the Tarzan books and said, well, if it was okay for Jane, it's okay for me. But of course, they ran into the same problem. They had to marry him off because they could not have her living in sin in the jungle with a, a wild man. So uh, uh, they, called, uh, they called Kygor the White Lord of the Jungle, again, a familiar name. And he had two main companions, or, or call them aides. One was Timbu George, who we've mentioned here in the contest, who was the head of a, a nearby tribe, but actually an American, an African-American who had worked, uh, at, among other things, as a, a cook, a ship's cook, and hailed from Chicago originally. But he somehow wound up uh, heading a tribe in Africa. And the other one was Negizo, who was the chief of a pygmy tribe called the Kamazilas. So the relationship between Timbu George and Negizo was kind of the same as between Monk and Ham in the Doc Savage stories. They're you know, constantly squabbling and poking fun at each other, but of course they're incredibly loyal and each would save the other's life and blah, blah, blah. Unlike Monk and Ham, they're actually pretty lethal characters because in a lot of the Kaigor stories, they're called upon to rescue him and they're not bashful about using their knives or their spears to uh, you know, mow down anybody who happens to get in the way. But uh, uh, they're, they're always there when the chips are down. So Kygor was clearly intended to be the headliner of Jungle Stories. He got the lead story in every issue, and he and Helene were the subjects of every cover. And naturally, Fiction House, as you know, was famous for their good girl covers. So it's funny that in the early covers, in the early, late 30s and early 40s, the two of them are more or less equal. The covers are drawn, are painted in, later in the 40s, as they had the emphasis on what they call good girl art, so that Helene was always the primary, you know, she was painted much bigger, and Kygor would be in the back, you know, this big, swinging on a vine towards her. But it was pretty clear who they were trying to, to, to reach with those covers. So... The, the stories got longer. They tended to average around 40,000 words, although some were a little longer, some were a little shorter. Uh, and beginning with the second issue, they gave the writer a house name, uh, and they called him John Peter Drummond, which was a, a fiction house house name that was used by, by uh, some other writers. And Kygor became kind of like the equivalent of Ned Pine's uh, The Phantom Detective in that practically everybody who wrote for the for the company, took a hand writing the Kygor Adventures. Now, in addition to John Murray Reynolds, who had written the first story, he did some others. There's another author named Hamilton Craigie who wrote one, James McKimmy, Bryce Walton, Robert Turner, Stanley Mullen. But the best two, as for my money, are Dan Cushman, who also wrote a backup series for Jungle Stories called um, Armless O'Neill, very interesting character, and Cushman is, is a great writer. He, he left the pulps and went into paperback originals, and uh, he, he did a lot of uh, paperback originals for Fawcett and for Ace 
in the early uh, 50s. But his stories were good. And the other guy who wrote Kygor stories was Wilbur S. Peacock, Wilbur Scott Peacock, who also edited Jungle Stories for a while. And um, he was moonlighting and writing the novels while he was also editing the magazine. So they let him get away with that. So altogether, there were 59 issues of Jungle Stories between 1938 and 1954. It's kind of a nightmare to collect these, I'll say parenthetically, because they reused titles to the novels. They reused covers. There are some covers that appear on the magazine, I think, three times. And sometimes they would even repeat the same story titles so they could use the same artwork with the same lettering on the cover. So it, and the only thing it would change is the date. So it's, it's pretty confusing if you can't remember offhand, oh, do I have this one? And you're going to see a familiar-looking cover, and maybe it's a totally different issue. So I, I just say that for those of you who might want to collect it. But it is, it, it's, a fun, it's, it's, a, it's a fun magazine. And I would say that, that the stories draw kind of equally from Burroughs' Tarzan of the Pulps and the movie Tarzans, uh, you know, the Johnny Weissmullers and, and those that follow. You know, they're the kind of things that, that Burroughs would not have written about that you do see in some of the movies. Uh, but again, the one constant is... Lots of lost cities, and they're almost always run by voluptuous white women who uh, wear very scanty outfits. So that alone makes Jungle Stories of interest to some people anyway. Um, and I, I will also add that in that last issue of Jungle, uh, there was a story featuring a female Tarzan called Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, who some of you may remember. And Sheena, of course, was originally created for the, one of the Fiction House comic books. She originally appeared in Jumbo Comics. Then, after the success of Jungle Stories, the pulp magazine, they did a Jungle Comics, and she appeared as the lead in the Jungle Comics, um, which I think also included Kygor stories, too. But um, they made her the object of the last cover of Jungle Stories, I think, in an effort to spruce up circulation. It didn't work. She had had a one-shot called Stories of Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, in 1951, which had three novelettes starring her and failed to catch fire. So that's about it. I'm sorry I've taken so long. And uh, back to Henry. Thank you, Ed. That was outstanding. I appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to open up for questions and answers. We could, uh, we could even discuss direct-to-book uh, Feral and Jungle Adventure people panel in four or five years. Yes, sir. Do you believe that Burroughs was pressed by Mobley stories by Kipling that start him on the idea of Tarzan? I didn't hear that. Uh, the question is, did, uh, did Burroughs, uh, you can see if I get this right, either was inspired by the Mobley stories or enjoyed them? before he wrote Tarzan. Is that basically the question? Is he uh, influenced by the Kipling novel Oh, Kipling. Was he influenced by Kipling? Right. Jungle Book. Okay. Yes, yes. I will oh, tell you that this has been... I will always recommend uh, Richard A. Lupal's Master Adventure, who does was probably one of the first to really get after uh, an analysis, at least from his perspective, about what inspired Burroughs and his major characters, don't be Tarzan. There have been others that have speculated about this, even uh, early on in, in Burroughs' own career. 
because people were just fascinated with the idea of what caused you, just you know, brand new writer, to come out with a, your second published book to have such an influence and capture your imaginations. And surely you couldn't have done this all on your own. And of course, no writer does. But the question has been, did you kind of lift it? And I'll tell you, he's always denied that uh, the Jungle Book stories and Kipling actually were a direct influence on Tarzan. So I have some fellow Burroughs fans in here. Does anybody wish to give a perspective on that? Because it is actually a very important question about what, what led to Tarzan coming out. Yes, sir. Lee. I understand that Burroughs acknowledged the influence of Mowgli on Tarzan. He may have uh, acknowledged uh, an influence. He never acknowledged a primary influence. In fact, in his later years, he made it, he said over and over again, well, he said a number of times, Romulus and Remus, and that feral component was actually what inspired him. And as you know, in the many schools he attended uh, when he was a teenager, as he was bounced around a bit, uh, he did do uh, more than one year of classic studies. And in fact, I'll contend that John Carter Mars and some other books, very early on, were built more around what he uh, learned in classic studies in Roman Greece than others. So he, he has denied that Kipling was the primary driver. He was not lifting Mabi. Now, the idea that, that he enjoyed the stories, I think, is true. I think they found copies of the books in his library when he acquired them is another story. But there, there have actually been whole books written on what was actually the, draw, the primary source of inspiration uh, on Tarzan. Because I will tell you, very few people want to admit that someone created anything out of the whole cloth without getting something from somebody. Did Dick Lupoff attribute a certain uh, influence? He, he did. He did. That's a good question. Thank you. Uh, great answers from the audience. Thank you for that. Uh, any other questions? we got 10 more minutes. Do we? Yeah. Let me ask you this question. Uh, who do we think was the first straight-to-book imitator uh, or imitation of Tarzan? I'll tell you what uh, Lupop says, but I'm curious what other fans might think. I don't know. Anybody else? Anyone? Uh, the first rip-off, well, I'm sorry, the first imitation of Tarzan that went straight-to-books, Dick uh, Lupop says, was Bamba from Roy Rockwood. Huh? And that first came out, if I did my math kind of correctly, and I'm not, it was about 1926. And uh, one of the more uh, famous characters that were straight to book was Caspa yeah. by C.T. Stoneham. In fact, uh, some people will claim that uh, the book had come, it came out in uh, 31. 31, and the fact that Caspa was raised by a lion may have caused uh, Burroughs to, not long afterward, write a book called Tarzan the Lion Man. And of course, we mentioned Bruce Bennett Herman Bricks as the interesting connector between um, Tarzan and Kyoga. Well, the, the, the link between Tarzan and Casper, because Casper went, went to film, is Buster Crab. Yeah, the book was called The Lion's Way, it's very hard to find in hardcover. However, it was reprinted in an issue of Famous Fantastic Mysteries. I, it was in the late 40s. I couldn't tell you the exact issue offhand, but I guarantee you there's five copies in the deal. Also, if you've got your Herbfest program book, it's in the back inside cover. Yeah. So Buster had been an Olympic swim champ. He competed in the 1932 Games in Los Angeles, and he was signed to a contract by Paramount 
uh, shortly thereafter, inasmuch as Johnny Weissmuller, another Olympic swimming champion, had been signed by MGM to play Tarzan, Paramount figured, well, this is the perfect guy to do Casper the Lion Man. So they actually bought the book with Crab in mind, and he made the movie. Uh, his, his leading lady was Frances D., who was later the wife of Joel McRae, and that movie was called King of the Jungle. Well, that, he hadn't finished that movie two months when he got a call from independent producer Saul Lesser, who put him in a Tarzan serial called Tarzan the Fearless which came out in the fall of 1933. And there's a very long story about how that came about, which we don't have time for here. But if you want to know, ask me later on, I'll tell you. Um, I got something. Um, you're talking about all these uh, you know, imitators. When, when was the first uh, gender bent where we had a female version of your jungle? Characters like Sheena and that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, Sheena was was created in 1938, but but she didn't uh, originally appear in Pulp. She was she was in the the comic book. Uh, if you're talking about Pulp's in particular, there was a series in All Story magazine in the teens that took place in Borneo, and I, I'm trying to remember the female lead's name. But again, she was she she you know, lived in a hostile environment, in a jungle environment. But again, it wasn't quite like Tarzan in that she was not a wild or a feral type person. You know, she just happened to exist in a jungle. Uh, but she interacted mostly with humans and not with animals. But that that goes as far back as like 1918. Daughter of the Jungle, I think, is one of them. There are three or four. Oh, the Argus Pheasant is one of the novels. I think the uh, Otis Albert was it Jan? Yeah, I mentioned Jan. Yeah, but that was much later. It, it is interesting. Uh, there's, a, there's a minor character, and I, of course, will not remember the novel, uh, where there's these uh, attempts at melding gorilla and uh, human genes. And all sorts of weird combinations happen. And there are, in fact, these weird combinations. Of, they're feral to the point that they were born genetically feral, and there was this very wild female that wound up, this is, I love this part of the story, and I keep trying to remember if it was Tarzan Invincible or what, where uh, they basically domesticate her. And she winds up in Hollywood starring in movies, smoking cigarettes and all. Am I getting this wrong? Anybody here? It was Tarzan Lion. Yeah. So I thought that was a great ironic twist back as well. And of course, uh, especially with Tarzan's quest, Jane of course is not feral, but she has shown to have acquired more of a jungle craft skills from her husband, and especially shows, and, and actually this, I think Burroughs highlights this once or twice in the novels, but it comes out m most prominently in Tarzan's Quest. So we at least get Jane to be a kind of a sort of Tarzan clone-ish through a, just a bent of hard work and good training. Got time for one or two more questions. Do you consider Miriam Farrell? Uh, oh, that's a good question. That is a good question. I would say, in the strictest sense, no. Yeah, I mean, she was thrown into it, um, and certainly, you know, hanging around with Korak, uh, that, I'm sure it rubbed off on her. But I mean, she doesn't come originally from from that kind of background. Of course, the irony is that Korak himself, it, it done several years in in, in uh, 
high society. Miriam, on the other hand, wound up being enslaved very young. So one might say that in some ways uh, she kind of straddled some pretty sad upbringings. As you know, as you know the, the gentleman that grabbed her was very cruel to her the whole time. So, uh, but that's it's great. One more question? One more. Lee. Are you familiar with Jongor of Lost Land? Yeah, Jongor was another character that appeared. Was that amazing or fantastic? I don't know. I got it in book form. Uh, it was in one of the Ziff Davis pulps. It was either Amazing Stories or Fantastic Adventures, 1940, 1941. Um, uh, it was Fantastic Adventures, uh, Return to Jongor, and 51 was Jongor Fights Back. So the first one was October 1940, Fantastic Adventures, by uh, Robert Moore Williams. So he, I would say he probably was the next step of prominence. Yeah. And one of the issues, I want to say it's 1942, it's certainly one of the World War II issues, has got a fantastic John Gore cover by J. Allen St. John, which is very much in the, in the mold of the Tarzan covers that he did. In fact, I think St. John may have actually done two covers. He might have. But yeah. he, he, in fact, it's interesting, if you really want to go six degrees of separation from Tarzan, is how many times does St. John get to do an imitation on a cover? John Gore is definitely the, the big one. Great. Let's, uh, since nobody's bugging us, let's take one more question if there's one out there. Oh, we were so close to perfection. Anyone? Throw in a question. All right, I guess we've exhausted the topic. Oh, Lee? Oh. Any comments on Saturine Fanderuli? Fanderuli. Saturine? Saturine Fanderuli. The Adventures of Saturine Fanderuli by Albert Robita. He was a French author. He was primarily imitating Jules Verne, but he had his character grow up on a South Pacific island, raised by apes. They invaded Australia, and he had a very long series of adventures, which were so over the top, it's hard to, you have to invent a new Were book. they published in America? Well, that's the thing. The Germans accused Burroughs of ripping off Rubita. But since it wasn't published in America until after Burroughs' uh, lifetime, that would be pretty hard. <laughs> I'm not familiar with the character at all. I, I, don't, I, I doubt the appeared in a pulp magazine here. I will say that I've annotated my notes here, that maybe in six years we do a panel on outside the U.S. Tarzan imitators. And then in seven years from now, we'll do all the rip-offs of Tarzan with further adventures not authorized. So I think we have a plan for the next, say, 10 years. But, but actually, I did actually have a question about how many uh, independent produced. Of course, the question is how much were pulps a medium outside the United States and Canada and occasionally Great Britain. But this is, I mean, these are great topics, though. Yeah. So, no. Yeah. Let me know. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for coming. Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thanks again. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. Also, 
look for the Pulp Net on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This pulp event podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.